Hello and welcome to the Anything But Catholic podcast, After Dark Edition. We're recording the second of our weekly segments in the evening, this one being our Q&A section where we take listener questions. David Cook, my friend, how are you this evening? Doing pretty good. Very good. Should we jump right into our listener questions? Absolutely. All right. Our first question this week comes from Christian, who I believe is a Christian. <laughs> and the question is, he says, quote, I'm reading things about a synodal crisis in Germany. Some clarity about what this is and what it means for church unity would be nice. Close quote. Yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> I, I think I can shed some light on it. So first All right. of all, um christian originally posted this in the facebook group which everyone should join if you haven't joined it already you should join it um that is one easy way to reach me but um he i asked him you know what he was kind of reading on this and he sent me an article at at cruxnow.com and i will we'll have the link in the description to that article but it seems like what's happening here is essentially you have some German bishops who are trying to set up a national synod to override the Pope. Now, in Vatican Council One, the notion that any authority could be above the Pope was shot down. You know, some people believed that the monarch could be ahead of the Pope. I mean, obviously, King Henry VIII, the Anglican schismatic, would be probably the most blatant and well-known case of this. But, you know, you had people in the Catholic Church prior to Vatican I who held to this. You know, there was a group within the church called the Gallicans who believed that, you know, at some level the king was equal to or ahead of the pope. You had a faction called conciliarists who believed that an ecumenical council was above a pope. And ultimately at Vatican I, the church put that to rest, um, declared that the pope has immediate and universal jurisdiction over the entire world. Which doesn't mean he can do whatever he wants, but it means he has authority over everyone. It's kind of like, you know, in an absolute monarchy, you still disobey the king if he tells you to obey God, but he has absolute jurisdiction over the entire country. Like, there's no higher authority than him. So in the same way, on earth, the highest authority in the church is the pope. So um, we've talked – so again, we've talked about before. You know, we're not saying that if the pope says something that is patently ridiculous, we have to believe it. Um, St. Robert Bellarmine said, and this is not an exact quote, I'm paraphrasing it, but he said something to the effect of, it is licit to resist a pope who seeks to destroy the church by not doing what he commands, but you cannot overthrow him, for that is an act of a superior. Now, to be clear, we're talking about acts that are manifestly and clearly against the tradition of the church or the well-being of the church, right? So, like, you know, that in that debate that I had with Pastor Bruce Bennett, he was like, well, if the Pope told you to worship a cat, what would you do? And it's like, well, obviously I would have to disobey because my my Bible, my universal church tradition and all previous magisterial pronouncements tell me, you know, don't worship a cat. Um, so even in that case, though, even if the Pope said, you know, you got to worship a cat, there couldn't be a synod that could, like, excommunicate him. Right. Like nobody has that authority. Bishop Schneider argued in an article recently that, you know, if you have a heretical pope, you kind of have to deal with it. There is more nuance to that discussion. But in essence, that's the that's the situation in the horrible scenario where a pope is against tradition. Now, here's the thing. 
while Pope Francis often goes against tradition and we criticize him for it when he does, we have to give him credit where he's right. And on a lot of these issues, the German suppose like this, like national synod are out of accord with tradition in a way that even Pope Francis is not. Now they, they, this synod brought up several things and the main ones are the idea of female priests and the idea of married priests. Okay. Do you want to say anything about what like that before I get into this issue? Well, the only thing I would say is, are you saying that functionally there's absolutely no way for a Pope, even who pronounces heresy formally to be deposed? The most the church could theoretically do is maybe, and this is like theoretical slash speculative, theoretically God could remove his office and the church could determine that happened. But the church can't do anything to make the Pope lose his office. So even if all, let's say all the bishops and cardinals in the church got together, convened a council of some sort and said, the Pope has... Formally pronounced heresy from the chair of Peter, attempted to do so infallibly. Therefore, he is not the Pope. That would be meaningless? Well, what it would be is it would be, if that happened hypothetically, it would, it, the, technically the way this would work is they would, well, first of all, it's debatable whether somebody who's recognized as Pope by the entire world could even attempt a heretical ex cathedra statement. God might strike him dead. But if it happened, I guess what the church would have to do is they would have to say, you know, God took away his office. We're just recognizing that. Like, it wouldn't be the council that made him lose his office. It would just be the council that would make us know he lost his office, if that makes sense. Yeah, so it would be kind of a post hoc, propter hoc issue. Of, yes. Okay. That makes sense. Okay, great. So, so yes, continue. Yeah, so in this case, this is a case where – so there's two issues that they brought up, female priests and married priests. Now, when it comes to the female priests, I think this is very clear. There's no basis for this anywhere in tradition. So believe it or not, Pope Francis is taking the traditional line here and saying, you know, women can't be priests, period, end of story. I'm not saying that will always be the case, but for now, praise God that that's the case. Pope Francis is saying no to this. Now, there are other things that are problematic, which I will get into later. But right now, like, just I, I will give the Holy Father credit. He said no female priests. And I think, you know, just like we give um, criticism when he says things that are wrong, we also got to give him credit when he does things that are right. I, I think that's important. That's part of being respectful to a superior. So I'm glad to be able to do that here. So bottom line, you know, with, not only can a synod not override a pope, but a syn for the idea of a synod overriding a pope to invent a new doctrine, absolutely unthinkable. Now, what about the married priests? Well, technically, it's not true that the church can't allow. Well, first of all, let me distinguish a couple of things. The church cannot allow an ordained man to marry. Um, that's never been done. It's absolutely contrary to the tradition. You know, once you receive holy orders, you cannot marry, period. Now... Married men being ordained to the priesthood, like a man who is already married being made a priest, has sometimes been tolerated, particularly in the smaller Eastern Catholic rites, which it's been allowed since the 6th century. 
And it's kind of what we call a pastoral dispensation. Like it's something that's not really ideal, but it's not inherently sinful. So that is allowed for Byzantine Catholic priests, but not for Latin Catholic priests. Now, theoretically, it would seem to me, I could be wrong about this, but it seems very probable the church, that the Pope could change this in the Latin Rite if he wanted to and could say we're going to allow Latin Rite priests to be, sorry, Latin Rite married men to be ordained priests. I do think that would be imprudent um, for several reasons, but technically I think he could probably do it. But again, I would encourage him not to do it. I think he technically could do it. But there's no way that a national synod can be like, well, we're going to override the Pope on this. Like, they don't have that authority. Um, at the end of the day, the tradition of the Latin Rite has always been that a married man cannot be a priest. And while that is disciplinary, technically, the only person that could give the green light for that is the Pope. There's no way a national church or a national synod can say, you know, we're the Pope says priests have to be celibate, but we're saying no. Do you have any idea where they even get the idea that they could get away with this? Um... From their from a former German named Martin Luther, probably. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know you're partially kidding, but I think it's that same spirit. I'm not really kidding. I mean, obviously, it's obviously. I mean, Martin Luther would probably never have dreamed of some of the stuff. Like, I don't think Martin Luther would have ever imagined that a woman could be a priest. Certainly, a married man, yes, but I don't think Luther would have imagined that a woman could be a priest. But you know, it's kind of. To a large extent, it's the same spirit. It's, you know, one man or a group of modern men get to decide what truth is rather than the perennial and universal teaching of the church and the government of that church, which Christ set up. In some ways, it's almost worse, right? Because at least Luther had the decency to separate himself from the church. These men want to remain within the church, but enact an authority within the church that they clearly don't have. You know, I will say this. I think that... Well, I see what you're saying. I mean, I think in normal times, that would be what would happen here as well. You know, if Leo X or Pius X or Pius V or like the vast majority of of uh, pre-Vatican II popes were in charge and this was going on. I, I think that th this would lead to excommunications. And this is where I will be more critical of Pope Francis. Well, I think that what he is doing is fundamentally correct in the sense that he's saying no. It seems like the wording is a little bit weak. Now, what I will say is that uh, this is an issue where I, I will grant that translations could come into play. I mean, the only language I know is English, and I assume the Pope doesn't speak it. But it seems to me that what he was kind of saying is, you know, we can't go off on our own and do these th do things apart from the church. And it's like, I really wish he'd put his foot down more. Instead of just, you know, you can't go off on your own and do this thing. I wish he would put his foot down and be like... This absolutely cannot be done, and if you even entertain it, you're outside the church. It's sad that I see there being more of a chance of him moving the opposite way on this. It could happen. I don't want to – I don't want to presume. I mean, you know, I pray for the Pope every day, and I hope that the prayers of um, good traditional Catholics will move him. I haven't seen signs of it, but, you know, God can do anything. I don't want to assume it's going to get worse or assume that he's going to get worse if I can't prove it. Right, very good. So one other, right. so a couple, so a couple other. I have a couple other thoughts on this. Sure. Um, number one, um, honestly, this kind of thing has happened with Francis before. Um, like for instance, he had an interview with that uh, older atheist guy. I'm forgetting what his name is, who basically said Francis denied the resurrection. Now I'm not going to assume Francis really denied the resurrection because there's no way I can know that. 
But I can definitely accuse him of what we know, which is at the very least, he shouldn't be giving interviews to people who are misrepresenting him in public. You know, Repeatedly. Like, it's scandalous. Repeatedly. Yeah. It's he at keeps very, going back to him. It's at the very least enabling scandal. And one of the German bishops said that Francis approves of the synodial path. Francis needs to be absolutely clear that is not the case. If he doesn't make it absolutely clear, he bears some responsibility for the confusion. Now, again, it does it seem to me that he really supports it. So far, no. It seems like he's at least giving like a moderate opposition. But if he's not very clear and says this is absolutely not true, he bears some responsibility for the fact that people are going to be confused. Yeah, his history would suggest that he's not going to do that. I think he gave yeah. – at least three interviews with the, the guy's name is Eugenio Scalfari, and each and every one seemed to have some problematic statement arise out of it. And at no point after any of them did Francis come out and strongly deny or deny at all that he had made the statements. He kind of let the ambiguity float around as it's his want. So here's my concluding thought. I think ultimately this is how lay Catholics, traditional lay Catholics need to think about this. I think we need to not worry so much about the day-to-day musings of the Pope. You know, we see this all – like, you know, we have so much more access than we ever did in the past. In the past, at the very least, he would have to actually publish and send out an encyclical for us to hear his thoughts. But now we have, like – because we have mass media, we have things like off-the-cuff airplane interviews or, you know, the Pope says something to some grieving kid. And it gets broadcast everywhere. So my general mindset would be, you know, live a traditional Catholic life. You know, don't worry about the Pope. Don't worry about bishops that are well to the left of the Pope. But, you know, find a Latin mass near where you live with a good priest that can shepherd you. And just practice the Catholic faith the way it's always been practiced. And I would say don't worry too much about it. Don't worry about this scuffle between the Pope and the bishops. You know, God will sort it out. This is probably the only time in the history of the church that someone could say, live a traditional Catholic life and don't worry about the Pope in the same sentence and have it not only be unironic, but sound advice. I think that this is an extreme case, but I wouldn't necessarily say it's the only time. Um, you know, there was definitely corruption in the pre-Tridentine era. Now, Luther went r- crazy with it, but, you know, there were things being done that were corrupt. And, and you know, I think if you, I, I believe one of the things Luther did was went to Rome and saw that it was really corrupt and he overreacted and he basically said you know what like this is so corrupt it can't be true and it's like you know no the church is made up of sinful men the church itself is holy but the men are very sinful um you know also there's debate over whether this was coerced but Pope Liberius at least uh, presumed to excommunicate Athanasius and Pope Honorius, like we talked about previously, at the very least enabled heresy in one of his letters. Now, do I think it's worse now? Yes. But I, I don't think bad popes that we can't fully follow are completely a novelty. Right. I think it's part of partly what you say, though, that during a lot of those occurrences, if the majority of the faithful ever knew about it, it certainly took a long time. Whereas now we have instant and widespread access to all this information, everything the pope does. There was an instance, I, I forget which priest this was, but there was a there was a priest who was a missionary in the New World, like during the time of the New World was being colonized, and he wrote back to somebody in Europe saying, like, please, if you have the time, write me back with the name of the Pope so I can pray for him. Mm-hmm. So right. this, this notion that like everything I think there's two extremes you can go to. On the one extreme, you can go to the extreme of the conciliarists, or even more so the Eastern Orthodox, who are just like, we don't need a Pope. 
and that's false. Um, St. Peter, um, the church was built on St. Peter. He has the keys. You know, you have to have the Pope. Um, St. Francis of Sales argues this point in the Calvinist controversy. But on the other hand, the other extreme is to kind of obsess over, like, everything the Pope does and assume that, like, you know, if the Pope is not being helpful, the traditional practice and faith is just gone. Like, and, and I think there's a middle ground. You know, we don't need to be constantly worrying about what the Pope is doing every second of every day. We don't need to presume that he's always going to be wise and prudent in all of his decisions. He holds the structure together. He is the monarchial head. But if he's doing things that are clearly contrary to tradition or are scandalous, just ignore him. I don't even want to say recognize and resist. I want to say just ignore it. That's how I feel, too. All right. Should we move on to our second question? Absolutely. Okay. This is our second question of the week. This is another anonymous question, and it says, how can you be against Protestant denominations when there seem to be denominations inside the Catholic Church? For example, the SSPX, the Novus Ordo, the TLM, the Eastern Rite, etc. Some of these are not mutually exclusive. Like, for instance, T- the Latin Mass, the SSPX is a priestly society that offers the Latin Mass. I just figured I'd point that out. So it's kind of like saying there's different types of animals. There's birds and then there's chickens. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. With that being said, um, first of all, I think it pays to get a little bit specific, right? Like, what do we mean by denomination? I, I do think, to be fair, some Catholic apologists can get a little bit flippant here. Like, Catholic apologists will say something like, you know, there's 40,000 Protestant denominations. And it's kind of like, okay, but some of these are like very similar types of Baptists that maybe do things a little bit too differently. And like, is that really a different church? I mean, you could definitely debate that. But my number one issue with Protestantism isn't just that there's differences among them. My number one issue is that None of them really line up either with the early church or with the rest of what they consider the church. So let me break that down. So when we look at what St. Ignatius says in the Epistle of the Smyrnaeans, he says that we have to obey the bishop as Jesus Christ and the presbytery as the apostles. Uh, Sorry, I think the presbyters is the word there, like priests. But obey the bishops as as Jesus Christ, uh, the priests as the apostles. He says that you know, the Gnostics don't eat the body and blood of Christ because they don't, sorry, they don't eat the Eucharist because they don't believe it's the body and blood of Christ. St. Irenaeus and Tertullian, and I didn't quote them here, I quote them during my um, opening statement of my debate with Pastor Bruce Bennett, but basically what they, what both St. Irenaeus and Tertullian argue against various heretics in their day is basically like, you know, if you want to have a say on this issue, show me your line of bishops going back to the apostles. Not let's look at your interpretation of scripture and see if it's right or if it's wrong, but give me your line of bishops going back to the apostles or shut up effectively. They were a lot more eloquent than that, but that's basically what they say. Um, If you look at the Council of Nicaea, which, again, most Protestants know this as the council to find the Trinity and they agree with that. But if you look through the canons, you have things like, you know, if somebody apostatizes and comes back to the faith, they have to do penance for a certain amount of time and then they have to spend a certain amount of time among the catechumens. You have things like, you know, um, the Bishop of Rome has authority here and the Bishop of uh, Al- of Alexandria has authority here. You've got things like, you know, Lent and Easter have to be celebrated on very particular dates. All of these things are very – all of these things are very clear um, that they are contrary to a Protestant way of thinking. There's also 
a whole thing about, you know, if somebody is under penance, but they're on their deathbed, they shouldn't be denied the last and most vital viaticum, meaning Eucharist. Like, basically, you know, if somebody's dying and they're under penance, it's so important for them to receive the Eucharist that if they're dying, they're allowed to receive it, even if they normally would still be under penance for sins they committed. So my point is, like, even if you go back to the very beginning, Protestantism is not what the church is practicing. The church is practicing Catholicism from the very beginning. So now add on top of that, that like on top of all that, add the fact that if you're even going to use the Bible to try to criticize the church, the church still has to give you the Bible in the first place. And what church is that? It's not any Protestant denomination. It can't be. They would not have the Bible if it wasn't for the Catholic Church compiling it and declaring what books infallibly belonged in it. Right. So all that being said, I, I, I could almost deal with it more if there were disagreements, if there were just as many disagreements among Protestants. But at the least, that was the kind of church structure that we saw in the early church. Like if it was always kind of the case that, you know, you had people arguing over Bible interpretations, then that would be one thing. That's not what you see. It's not what you see in Acts chapter 15, um, you know, where the church has a controversy and they hold a council and they make a ruling. And it didn't matter whether you thought it agreed with the scripture or not. You had to follow it. That's what you see with the Council of Nicaea. Again, they don't say, you know, they don't say what the Westminster Confession of Faith says. And I cite the Westminster Confession of Faith, so it's a pretty popular Protestant confession. But, you know, the Westminster Confession of Faith says that this confession, the Westminster Confession, is not the rule of faith. It, it, this is a paraphrase, but basically what it says, is it's not a rule of faith. It's just meant to help you interpret the Bible. Right. But that's not how the Council of Nicaea operates. The Council of Nicaea says, you know, this is what it is. And if you don't believe it, you're anathema. You're out. <laughs> you're out, you're out of the church. So in Matthew chapter 16, um, Jesus says to Peter, you are Peter and on this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth, shall I bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth, shall I loose in heaven. Did that just go away when Peter died? Like did Peter die and that just like cease to exist? Uh, of course not. You know, you have, an actual you have an actual difference being made based on what a man on earth does. What he binds on earth is bound in heaven. So if you're excommunicated by him, that actually matters. Um, you don't have anything like this in Protestantism. You know, if Pastor Bob excommunicates you because he doesn't agree with your interpretation of theology, you can just go to Pastor Jim, who has a different interpretation. Um <laughs> So um, does that make sense? I have more, but I don't know if you want to weigh in. I don't want to just talk at the thing for like 15 minutes. No, it's fine. I just – I'm curious now. Have Protestant pastors ever attempted to excommunicate someone from their church? Absolutely. Uh, really? Yes. How does that work? I've heard of people who were um, – I mean, there are different ways of doing it because every Protestant denomination is different. Um, when I, before I converted to Catholicism, I was in the URCNA, um, which is a Dutch Reformed denomination. And um, when I converted, they sort of started to try to excommunicate me. I mean, they were they were willing to let me resign rather than being like full on excommunicated, but. Um, they theoretically could have started an internal process to excommunicate me if they if I had wanted to like really fight with it for whatever reason. Um, I'm trying to think of um, I, I do know I don't remember who they are, but I've definitely talked to people who have gone from Protestantism to either Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy and have been quote excommunicated. 
Um, it happens all the time because of moral issues. If somebody doesn't repent, of which would be a correct application. It's just that they don't have the authority to do it. Um, in the case, in the case of the people that, in the case of the people that left to convert to Catholicism, isn't that kind of a instance of um, you can't fire me, I quit? I mean, <laughs> they're doing it after the fact, right? So if somebody leaves and converts to Catholicism, and then they get excommunicated. Seems to be like it's a little too late. Yeah, I mean, it depends on how fanatical they get, because some, a few Protestants really believe strongly in the idea that their church has authority, to the point where they would just do it anyways and think God would honor it. Most of the time, that doesn't really happen. Usually it's more likely to be the case if somebody wants to stay in a church for whatever reason, but is not acting in conformity with it or, or something. But the bottom line, now I would say, I think this is more common with Reformed Protestants, because I know there are a lot of Protestants who, I would agree with you, just don't really think like that. But there are, de- especially in Reformed circles, I see this a lot. Interesting. Because I okay, think well, you know, one, one person I know who left the same URCNA church I go to, to go to the Catholic church. Um, she told me that all her life, like growing up in the reformed church, she just assumed that her church was the church that Christ founded. And then once she realized there was something else, it was like, well, I can't stay there anymore. But for a long time, she just took for granted that, you know, when it says Christ founded a church, that was her church. So a lot of people do actually think this. They don't. If you don't know the history, you can really believe that one or more of these Protestant groups has real authority. Sure. If you're within one, otherwise, why are you within it? Right. So here's the other thing. Catholics don't just throw the word – even though there are disagreements in the Catholic Church, Catholics don't just throw heresy around based on their own opinions, right? We go by defined church dogma where it's very specific. If the church says that you're anathema, if you believe this, then I believe that. But Protestants pretty much throw the word heresy around based on whether or not someone agrees or doesn't agree with their interpretation of scripture, which is completely contrary to the way this works. I mean, all the old heretics would have said, we disagree with the church because the church disagrees with the Bible, right? Like, it's what they all would say. That's like kind of, it's kind of self-refuting, right? Because everyone believes, well, I shouldn't say everyone, but a whole lot of people believe their views line up with scripture, and that's why they hold to them. And the church says, no, scripture says this. And the heretic says, no, we're not. No, it doesn't. That's what how it works. But the Protestant inverts that and somehow says, you know, if the church disagrees with my interpretation of scripture, I get to say the church is heretical. That would be the greatest ever name for a Protestant denomination, the old heretics. <laughs> to varying degrees, many Protestants define heresy based on the church's historical teaching except where they disagree with so again going back to the council of nicaea again many protestants will say well non-trinitarianism is heretical because the church condemned it in the council of nicaea now again i'm not saying all protestants that's definitely more of a high level protestant thing but i actually see this a lot protestants will say you know the council of nicaea determined that everybody has to hold to the trinity but then they'll reject other doctrines that are clearly taught in that council like baptismal regeneration the idea that baptism actually washes away original sin Things like the necessity of doing penance, that the church can command particular holy days. Like all these things exist in the same council and Protestant, these high level, same high level Protestants are like, well, I don't have to follow that because I don't think it agrees with scripture. 
You know, the semi-Arians could have said the idea that Jesus is the same substance as the Father didn't line up with Scripture. And they'd be wrong, but they could certainly try to argue for that and say, you know, that's a man-made tradition that's not clearly taught in the text. But the church didn't care. It's not because the church is afraid of good arguments. Sorry, it's not because the church is afraid of good arguments or that it's afraid to um, – that just wants to shut people down or hide the truth. But it's just – at the end of the day, in order to move forward on anything – some discussions have to end. So if we're constantly debating the basics forever, such as like who God is, what the sacraments are, we can't do anything. We can't reach the world with a consistent message if it's not defined, if we don't end the debate. And we can't continue to move forward on subjects that maybe we don't have as much clarity on yet. Does that make sense? It does. In order for God to be worshipped in the manner that he requests, demands that we worship him, Someone kind of has to have the reins. Now, these are all the issues I mentioned with Protestants. So now let's break down the various Catholic groups a little bit, quote unquote. So this is not equivalent to the quote unquote Catholic groups. All Catholic groups are under the authority of one shepherd, the Pope, the Vicar of Christ. All Catholic groups hold to the same dogmas of the faith, or at least the same dogmas of the faith are clearly defined that they have to hold to. So like, for instance... And I'll give several examples, recognizing that it's not the sum total of the issue. But OK, what do Catholics believe on the Eucharist? Well, you believe this is the true body and true blood of Jesus Christ. It, ter- it, it transubstantiates, the substance changes, the accidents remain the same. What do Protestants believe about the Eucharist? Well, all sorts of things. Pastor Bob at First Bible Baptist believes that it's just a symbol. It doesn't do anything. Whereas, um, you know, Pastor Jordan Cooper um, would believe that it is the true body and blood of Christ and would probably not commune Pastor Bob. (laughs) Um, Now, there are other examples. You know, what does the church teach on Mary? Well, she is the immaculate, blessed mother of God, immaculately conceived, perpetual virgin, mother of God ever. uh, And, um, you know, whereas Protestants believe You know, some Protestants do believe that Mary was a perpetual virgin. Others believe that's heretical and blasphemous. Um, Generally, Protestants don't pray to Mary, but a few Anglicans do. Whereas, again, um, you know, Pastor Jim would uh, of of Second Bible Baptist would say that that's a heresy and idolatry. So um, and I could give other examples, but you get the idea. Um, Now. Why do these issues exist in Catholicism that do exist? Well, what basically happened is, number one, the Pope and some bishops have taught non-definitive things that seem to go against the universal tradition of the church and the dogmas that are clearly defined. The main source of this is a council called Vatican II, which is a, according to the Pope, it's a pastoral council. Pope Paul VI and Pope Benedict XVI both said that it is not going to teach any new dogmas and that it's not invoking infallibility. John the 23rd, the pope who originally invoked the council, said, also said, you know, I'm only infallible if I speak infallibly, and I'm never going to do that, so I'm not infallible. So basically, this is a council where the church said, you know, we're not going to definitively bind anybody to anything. We're just going to kind of speculate. That's an oversimplification. That's basically what happened. And then people ran wild with it. Now, there are really three different types of Catholics, Okay. And I'm going to broadly label them as – you could debate these labels, but I'm going to generally label them liberal, conservative, and traditional. So the basic idea is this. A liberal Catholic does not believe 
the dogmas or teachings of the church at all. They pick and choose what they want to believe. So it's the equivalent of a Protestant who doesn't believe the Bible. You know, like we could use, we can't use a Protestant who doesn't believe in the source material as an argument against Protestantism. And we can't use a Catholic who doesn't believe in Catholic dogma as an argument against Catholicism. You know, um, even the atheist Richard Dawkins pointed out, you know, if you don't believe in transubstantiation, you're not a Catholic. And he's right. Um, you can't just pick and choose what you want to believe. You either, um, and to quote a much better um, person than Richard Dawkins, uh, Pope Benedict XV, who we've talked about previously, said, you know, the nature of Catholicism is it's accepted as a whole or rejected as a whole. Um, you can't pick and choose parts of it. It's either all or nothing. So, yes, it's true that because of weak leadership, not always are the liberal Catholics excommunicated. But nonetheless, they are not Catholic, period. Joe Biden supports abortion. That goes against the teaching of the church. He's not a Catholic, period. So really the debate comes down to, I think in real terms, the real distinction is between what we call the conservatives and the traditionalists. And what's the difference between them? Well, basically, you know, the conservative Catholics interpret tradition through the current magisterium. The traditionalists interprets the current magisterium through tradition, if they accept it at all. Particularly talking about Vatican II here. So basically what it comes down to is, okay, do we give more weight to everything that was taught before Vatican II, or do we give more weight to Vatican II? And I think these things do matter. Don't get me wrong. I mean, we do identify ourselves as a traditional Catholic podcast and not for no reason. But nonetheless, I think the debates between these two groups are a lot more, are a lot less fundamental, even though I think they do matter a lot. I'd say they're less fundamental than the disagreements between Protestants. So for instance, Conservative and traditional Catholics would argue over whether communion in the hand is inherently disrespectful and sacrilegious. They're not arguing over whether the Eucharist is Jesus, right? Like, we already agree on that. So, as far as the conservatives and traditionalists go, keep in mind, these are not denominations. Um, the most you could compare it to is maybe, like, you know, you have two different types of Baptists. Like, let's say you have one Baptist who, you know, has a rock concert. You have another Baptist who has, like, traditional, um, quote-unquote, traditional hymns and preaching. Right. But they both still are Baptist. They believe in the same dog, quote unquote, dogmas. But they just have one has a very free flowy, irreverent form of worship. And another one has a very a comparatively speaking, reverent form of, quote, worship. So that's what I would say is going on in Catholicism. Like, basically, you have um, one group of Catholics saying the Novus Ordo and different. There are different forms of the Novus Ordo, but. The debate is over, basically, you know, is this really a respectful way to worship God? Obviously, it's new. Um, is this really a respectful way to worship God? But the dogmas are the same. Like, we're not arguing over, like, what the Eucharist is, what baptism is, what the Pope is, what, you know, tradition is, um, and so on. So, whereas, like, Baptists, again, like, Baptists believe that the Eucharist is a symbol, or they would probably not even call it the Eucharist or call it a sacrament. While George, while Lutheran pastor would believe it's the body and blood of Jesus, some high church Anglicans believe in prayer to saints, but you know, for but a lot of Protestants would consider that to be absolute idolatry. You have some Calvinists who believe that if you believe in free will, that's a false gospel. Uh, Charles Spurgeon famously said that he doesn't believe it's possible to preach the gospel unless you preach what is commonly called Calvinism. But you have, but most Protestants don't believe in Calvinism. So you have, and I could go on and on, but my point is these are fundamental differences of belief. 
Whereas with Catholicism, I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, are these new practices consistent with what we've always believed? It's also a distinction of, you know, a liberal Catholic and a traditional Catholic and a conservative Catholic, they all believe they're Catholic. Whereas a Lutheran knows he's not a Calvinist, a Baptist knows he's not a Lutheran, etc. But somehow they're all part of the same, quote, invisible church. Right. Well, that's Which I think is another thing. problem. Like, where do we get this idea that the church isn't an actual institution? Where is that in scripture or where is that in the tradition of the church? You can't find it in either place. The whole invisible church of all believers in different denominations is not an idea that exists. But that's not what's going on with, like, the FSSP versus the SSPX versus whatever. We're all under the Pope. Right. And now, even with the SSPX, which I'll get into this a little bit, because a lot of people ask questions about the SSPX because of the supposedly canonical irregular status. And it's a complicated issue. But basically what I will say about it is the SSPX would still acknowledge the Pope as their hierarchical superior. They would still acknowledge the local diocesan bishop as their hierarchical superior. They're just disobeying on certain things because they would see those things as contrary to tradition. So they would see Rome's elevation of certain pastoral teachings that seem to contradict dogmatic ones as practically trumping the dogmas. Rome would deny it. And I think they're wrong, but Rome would deny it. But in the strict sense, though, Rome and the SSPX have to agree that what the church has handed down for 1950 years before Vatican II has to be true. It's all true. The question is whether the, the modern pastoral council can be squared with it or not. But all those old things are true. Protestants don't have any consensus like that. The most they would have is, quote unquote, the Bible. But there's not really. But the minute we get into any actual statements about what it says, there's debate. Right. Now, even um, now, any Catholic can on principle commune in any Catholic church. Even with the SSPX, with the supposed canonical irregularity, if you go to the Novus Ordo Mass every week and you show up at the SSPX, they will commune you. Now, the priest would probably recommend that you don't go to the Novus Ordo, but they would commune you because you are a Catholic and the priest knows that. Anyone who attends an SSPX chapel could go to a diocesan parish and, and commune. Again, might not be recommended, but you can certainly do it. Whereas with Protestantism, there's different views on what communion is, and there's different views on who's allowed to receive it. Again, I don't think Jordan Cooper would commune um, a Baptist. Most Lutherans would not. Um, whereas Anglicans commune everybody. But within their quote-unquote denomination, there are some people that are basically Presbyterians with bishops, and there are some people that are basically Catholics without a pope. So you have all these different views jumbled together into the same church. It's not just people not believing in their theology. You have people who will argue over how authoritative the 39 articles are in Anglicanism, you know? Now, I will, I'm going to conclude with this, though. Let's imagine for the sake of argument that it was true. Let's imagine that the modern popes are so bad that, effectively speaking, Catholics have been fragmented into denominations. I don't think that's quite true. Well, let's imagine it was true for the sake of argument. I would still consider our position to be far preferable and more defensible than the Protestant situation. If that was the case, what I would say is that the traditional Catholic was forced into that situation since his leaders have deviated from what was historically passed down. Archbishop Lefebvre didn't change anything. Whatever else you think of him, he didn't change anything. He went to Africa as a missionary. He came back and stuff changed around him. He didn't change anything. He was not like, well, I want to go back 200 years or 500 years or 1000 years. Stuff changed around him. You can't say that about a Protestant. 
Protestants put themselves into that position because they read scripture for themselves, which most people couldn't do throughout history, and make a decision. Whether Now, I'm not saying it's not in good faith. Sometimes maybe it is. But they make a decision. I don't agree with the way this has been understood. I want to understand it. And I think it means something different than what has historically been understood. Those are great distinctions. Um, the Eastern liturgy itself is certainly very holy and very pious. And any Catholic can go to mass there. But to be clear, I'm talking about Eastern Catholics, not the Eastern Orthodox, which are a different can of worms because they don't believe in the Pope or in certain Catholic dogmas. They are a different church. But as far as the Eastern Catholics go, who are in communion with the Pope, um, the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom is a holy and beautiful liturgy. Um, it is ancient. Um, however, one issue to keep in mind if you're going to an Eastern Catholic parish, Rome never tried to tell Eastern Catholics to change their worship in the same way. So in the TLM, in the Latin Mass, you have kind of a general understanding that the priests there are going to be more traditional in their theology. They're going to hold more firmly to dogma and to tradition. Whereas with the Eastern rites, that's not always the case because they were never really forced to change. So it's more likely that you would find a liberal Eastern rite priest than a Latin mass priest. Okay. Well, as always, being that the whole focus of the show is to answer listener questions, we need to receive listener questions. So there are several ways that you can send them to us. The first way is to email them to cquavirtus at protonmail.com. It's S-I-Q-U-A-V-I-R-T-U-S. And protonmail is P-R-O-T-O-N-M-A-I-L.com. We will receive questions there. The second way that you can do so is to join our Facebook group, and please do. The Facebook group is facebook.com slash groups slash anything but Catholic, and that is all one word. Uh, my co-host and the apologist here, David Cook, is also open to debate Protestants, and he has one such debate coming up. David, can you tell us about that? Yes. So on December 13th, um, Sunday, I will debate. I will be debating Protestant apologist John Wesley Bush III on the topic of Sola Scriptura. He takes a bit of a different position on Sola Scriptura than the pastor I previously debated, so I think this debate will go a little bit differently um so please it's probably going to be on zoom and we will give all the information for that as it comes up so please tune in for that that's going to be on sunday december 13th at 2 30 p.m eastern time very good and as always please visit our main site sequavirtus.com spelled the same as the aforementioned email where you can find the full range of our content there's this podcast all previous episodes of this podcast our other two podcasts user submitted artwork writing literature photography, etc. Also the link to our Patreon, and please help us out and support us in any way you can, and the link to our merchandise shop. All right, very good. This has been Anything But Catholic. I am your host, Christopher Lawrence. With me, as always, apologist David Cook. We wish you all a great night, a great week, and God bless. <laughs>